morning. It's real good to be here with you. Um, though I was, I was hoping we wouldn't have to preach this morning. That worship was, uh, was so rich. Thank you all for that. Um, and I, I think after that worship set, I'm a little bit of an emotional basket case, so I could probably do with some prayer this morning. Um, kids, glad you could be with us. Um, if you haven't taken out your activity packs, you can do that now. Thanks for being patient and waiting for that. Um, and I got a homework assignment. On your way home, you need to quiz your parents, ask your parents, what's one way that God helps us wait patiently for his provision, for him to provide for us, Okay. What's one way that God helps us to be patient and wait for him? For the rest of us, I'd like to ask you a favor. Please, if you would, join with me as we ask God to open our eyes by the power of his spirit to the truth of who he is and what he is. Pray with me. God of heaven, thank you for this time that we can be together and be in your word. Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit. We pray that you might give us ears attentive to your spirit that lives within us. That the spirit himself might testify with our spirit to the truth of our hope in Jesus Christ. Lord, renew us, we pray, in the greatness of the hope that is ours. Teach us, instruct us, and grant us the ability to live for your glory and your honor. We long for that, Jesus. Work that in us, we pray. Amen. This morning, we're going to be looking at a passage from the book of Romans, starting at verse 12 in Romans chapter 8. I'd like to read that to you. If you have your scriptures with you, I invite you to take them out and follow along, and it may possibly be on the screen behind me. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But... If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. The scripture says that God has given us this spirit of sonship that sets us free from our slavery to fear. Free from living as orphans, trying to provide for ourselves. We know that God is our good father and we can trust in his provision. And we can trust in his provision now and for all eternity. And that sets us free from the fear of having to scrape to provide for ourselves, free to be able to love others with the love of Christ. A mark of a child of God is that the spirit of God within us testifies that we are God's beloved children and we have an eternal inheritance. But Paul says there's something else as well that sets apart the children of God. Verse 17 now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Paul says, a mark of the children of God is that they share in the sufferings of Christ. 
And because, of their sharing, because they are children, they are heirs. And then he says something that's really hard. He says, if you don't share in the sufferings of Christ, you're not an heir because you're not a child of God. Because the children of God are all heirs of God. That's pretty heavy stuff. I mean, I think it's pretty important that we understand what does it mean what does Paul mean when he says we are to share in the sufferings of Christ? I mean, does, does, does that mean we have to go out and get crucified? Does that mean we have to go and do something difficult, you know, something hard and prove that we are willing to suffer for Christ? It's interesting that the word translated suffering in this, in this verse, that same exact Greek word appears earlier in Romans chapter 7 verse 15. Except there it's not interpreted, it's not translated as suffering, it's translated as passion. Where it talks, the, Paul is talking about the passions of your sinful nature. And he uses that same word as suffering. You see, the sufferings of Christ is not Jesus being stoic and heading for the cross because it's the noble thing to do. He heads for the cross because of his passionate love for you. Under the sufferings of Christ is love. It is a love that is willing to suffer to bless its beloved. You see, the nature of love, we've said this before, every time I preach I'll probably say it, but the nature of love is to find its delight in delighting its beloved. If it has to suffer to bring joy to its beloved, it does it because its joy, that love finds its joy in the joy of its beloved. Jesus, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. What was his joy? You. Redeeming you and making you a child of God. Your joy is his joy. Think back a week ago. Kids are tearing into the presence, right? And they start, Daddy, this is so great. I love it. You better love it, kid. You know how much that cost? There's some serious coin there, boy. No, no. You're, you, love, you love your children. Their joy is your joy. You don't count the cost. Well, maybe not. Maybe, I mean, you kind of count the cost. But you, it's, you're, the goal is their joy. The nature of love is it finds joy in the joy of its beloved. This Christ, underneath the sufferings of Christ, is a joy-seeking love. The call to share in the sufferings of Christ is indeed a call to suffer, but it's to suffer for the sake of, of seeing others blessed. Suffer for the sake of the glory of God and the joy of that. It is, it is not some stoic call to go do hard things. It is a call to love and not be afraid of hard things in the process of loving. There's only one problem with all of this. Well, there's multiple problems, but one big problem with all of this is that none of us like to suffer. I mean, let's face it, pain hurts, right? I mean, <laughs> nobody, we, and not only that, not only are we naturally averse to suffering, but we live in a culture that, that, is, that has deified comfort. Comfort is our God. And, and we have elevated comfort as the highest good that we can seek. Now, now, listen, the eradication of suffering is a good thing. Right? Seeking to eradicate suffering, that's, 
That's the mark of the coming kingdom, right? Death, pain, and suffering, gone. The eradication of suffering and, and, and pain is a good thing. But when it becomes the main thing, when it becomes the primary thing, it becomes a terribly bad thing. When our goal is to eliminate all suffering from our lives, we bring about a world of hurt. It's interesting to note that in cultures where pain is viewed, where pain and suffering are viewed as part, a normal part of life, in cultures where pain and suffering actually are viewed as, as instructive and part of the healing process, those nations and those cultures have not experienced an opioid crisis of any, of any magnitude. And yet in our culture that says you have a God-given right to be pain-free. In fact, the sole goal of your life is to live as comfortably as you possibly can. In our culture, we have been ravaged by the opioid crisis. And we have brought pain upon pain upon ourselves. And it's not just, it's not just physical pain that we want to avoid. It is said that 25% of college students are on some mood-altering drug. Any sort of mental angst is, is not tolerable because we, we've got to be comfortable. And what about relationally? In our culture, hopefully not among us, but in our culture, when someone is in a relationship that turns painful, when that relationship is causing them pain, what do they do? In our therapeutic culture, we label that relationship as toxic and we ghost them. It could be a lifelong friend. It could be our own children. It could be our parents. These Profound and deep relationships we cut off because our comfort is more important than those relationships. Our nation is struggling with an obesity crisis, and I understand that it's com complex. But one of the factors playing into that crisis is the fact that we, self-included, are not willing to be hungry. We are not willing to sit in our hunger. It's unacceptable to experience hunger. And I'm not just talking about food. Every sin, from the first sin forward, every single sin that has ever happened in the world and in your life is because we were not willing to sit in our hunger and wait for God. Eve looks at the fruit. It's tasty. She's hungry for it. Eve looks at the fruit. It's beautiful. She's hungry for beauty. Eve looks at the fruit. It's going to bring her knowledge. She's hungry for knowledge. But she is unwilling to sit with the pain of hunger and wait for God. And so she takes that fruit and she literally brings about a world of hurt. It happens every time. So how is it? How is it that we can learn to sit in our hunger? If we are going to show compassion, we must be able to learn to sit with our own pain because the word compassion comes from two Latin words, the Latin prefix com, which means together or with, and the Latin word passion, which means suffering. So for us to show compassion, 
means to step into the sufferings of another. To feel their pain with them. To shoulder up underneath that pain with them. And bear their burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But if we are not willing to experience pain and suffering in our lives, we cannot suffer with anyone else. We are rendered incapable of showing compassion, incapable of sharing in the compassionate sufferings of Christ. In the early 1500s, a great revival broke out across Germany. And the revival was led by this feisty young Catholic priest named Martin Luther. And, and Luther was proclaiming that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. And, and, and the, the, this gospel of grace was just torching through the land. And this revival later became known as the Reformation. And one of the things that Luther saw that needed Reformation was how the church was treating the Jews. The church at the time was treating the Jews harshly. And, and Luther had compassion on them and took a stand for the Jews, took a stand for justice. And in 1523, he wrote an essay in their defense. The title of the essay was that Jesus was born a Jew. I want to I read to you a paragraph from the essay. Now, if, if you've never heard or read Luther before, you might want to buckle up. <laughs> from his essay that Jesus was born a Jew. If I had been a Jew and had seen such dolts and blockheads govern and teach the Christian faith, I would sooner have become a hog than a Christian. They have dealt with the Jews as if they were dogs rather than human beings. They have done little else than deride them and seize their property. When they baptize them, they show them nothing of Christian doctrine or life, but only subject them to popishness and mockery. Luther saw the oppression of the Jews. And he sought with compassion to deliver them from this oppression. He spoke against it. Luther not only saw the, the, how the church was oppressing them, Luther saw how Judaism was oppressing them. They were bearing up under this load of legalism. And Luther had tasted of the grace and the goodness of Christ Jesus, and he wanted them to taste that glorious freedom. And so Luther spent, over the next 20 years, spent time seeking to evangelize the Jews. Seeking to, 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 to express compassion toward them. Seeking to bring them the gospel. And that almost every turn he was frustrated. They remained incalcitrant. Unwilling to repent and follow Jesus. And after 20 years of frustration, Luther picks up his pen again. And this time he writes a piece in 1543 called The Jews and Their Lies. And in that piece, he says that any Jew who refuses to follow Jesus should have his house burnt to the ground. He should have his books confiscated. That the Jewish synagogues should be torn down. That the Jews who refuse to convert should be forced to live as gypsies and only allowed to do manual labor. This man who was a champion of grace. His writings are later used by the Nazis to in part justify their harsh treatment of the Jews. 
What happened? Now, before you go too hard on, on Martin, let's take a look at our own lives. Think about that relative of yours who has struggled with addiction. Do you have a heart of compassion for them? Or, or, or has their incessant refusal to, 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 to find help as their, have the, their incessant lies, have they worn you down to the place where you've written them off and no longer plead for them and the bondage that they're in? You're just so frustrated by the refusal to do the right thing. Or what about that person at work who's just always complaining? Just critical about this, critical about that, critical about this. Just, ah, just drives you nuts. Are, are you pleading with God for them, seeing that they are, their soul is in prison, in, 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 in this joyless prison? Or have you participated in their criticalness by criticizing their criticalness? And what about that friend of yours who has guzzled down gallons and gallons of political Kool-Aid and has believed some crazy stuff? Does your heart break for them because these, these friends who once knew the joy of freedom in Christ Jesus are now enslaved to political anger and fear? Or do you stand back from them and say, oh, I'm just amazed that they could be that stupid. Compassion is a long, difficult road. And cynicism and contempt is the easy way, and it's always just a few steps away. The fact of the matter is that none of us have in ourselves the capacity to share in the sufferings of Christ Jesus for any length of time. We will experience compassion fatigue. And will turn toward bitterness and cynicism. I've seen it in my own life. What then's the remedy? What do we do? How is it that we can be set free to share in the sufferings of Christ Jesus? To persistently, consistently live a life of compassion. Well, the scripture that we read already tells us a big part of it. And that is to allow the Spirit of God to testify with our spirit that we are God's children, that we don't have to protect ourselves in the midst of frustration. We can sit in that frustration because God is our provider. And we can be humbled by his goodness to us. But there is another means of grace as well that I think has been largely neglected by the modern church. And that's what, for the rest of our time, that's what I want to focus on. This other means of grace that God has given us to be able to live a life of consistent and persistent compassion. The late R.C. Sproul had a, a column in Table Talk magazine, a monthly column, which was entitled, Right Now Counts Forever. We know that, right? 
what we do right now forms our forever at some level. But what I think we fail to remember is that forever counts right now. Forever counts right now. That is, if our hope is fixed on the glory of Christ Jesus' return of the coming of the kingdom, that will shape what we do right now. But we have largely lost hold of that great means of grace. Look with me at Romans 8 again, continuing at verse 18. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought, this is a great phrase, brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. One of the reasons that we fail to be able to live in consistent and persistent compassion to enter into the sufferings of Jesus is that we do not see our own sufferings in the right perspective. Humor me for just a minute, if you would. Put your right hand one inch in front of your face. Okay? Hold it there. Now tell me, Living like this, how easy would it be to care for, to see the needs of others and to care for them? Now, extend your hand out and hold it at arm's length. Now, if you had to live like this, how hard would it be to see the needs of others around you and care for them? What I'm trying to say is when our, when our sufferings are this close, they're all we can see. And we cannot care for the needs of others because our sufferings occupy our entire vision. They're there. When they're out here, they're there. They're real. But they don't occupy our whole vision. Paul says, you need to put your sufferings in perspective. What's he say? I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Like, Paul, you don't understand. I'm going through some stuff. Paul, you don't understand. Paul, you were only beaten to within an inch of your life with whips five times. You were only beaten with rods three times. You were only stoned and left for dead once. You were only shipwrecked and spent a night and a day in the open sea. You were only abandoned by the very people you loved. Paul is not writing this from a place of comfort, but from a place of deep suffering. And he says, it's nothing compared to the glory that waits us. There is a freedom when we realize the glory that waits us. That our, our comfort is not to be found in this age, but in the age to come. And it is glorious. And that empowers us to endure here and now. As I mentioned, Paul was whipped 30, 
40 lashes minus one, they, 40 supposedly would kill you. And so they'd back off and, and whip him 39 times just to be safe. So five times he was whipped within an inch of his life, three times beaten with rods, spent a night and a day in the open sea, was in prison. Not only that, the emotional pain that he went through, every single one of the beloved churches he planted went sideways on him. And the very people he loved with his own heart, when he was being, when he was sentenced to be put to death for his faith, he was abandoned by some of his closest friends. And yet there is no hint of cynicism or bitterness. He lives a life of consistent and persistent compassion. Why? He tells us why. 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs it all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. It is our eternal hope that sets us free from, from a need to be comfortable here and now. It is our eternal hope that sets us free to feel the suffering and the pain that is around us and in us. And it is that very pain that is around us and in us that deepens our eternal longing. And the more we long for the coming glory of the kingdom of God, the more we are set free to take on the pains of those around us. And the more we struggle under the pains of those around us, the deeper our hope in the kingdom of God. This is the work of the word and the spirit in our lives. We are no longer a slave to fear. Listen, if this life is all there is, then you are right to seek comfort above all else. Paul puts it this way. He says, if, if, if this life is all there is, then party like a college freshman and die young. Those aren't his exact words, but that's, he says, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. He says, man, get the best taste in food. Get the best wine, numb yourself out until you kick the bucket. If this life is all there is, that makes complete sense. But if there is an eternity, that changes everything. That changes everything. Karl Marx famously said that religion is the opiate of the masses. By that, he, he meant that th these masses who are being oppressed, these poor workers who are, who are being oppressed and live these painful lives, what allows them to live those painful lives is this, this future hope they have. And it dulls their senses so that they, can, that they can continue to be oppressed and not revolt. Marx was right in the sense that our future hope does give us the strength to bear up under pain. But he was dead wrong when he called it an opiate. It's, it's actually the complete opposite. Our future hope sets us free from our slavery to comfort so that now we can feel the pain of those around us and enter into that pain 
It sets us free from having to be comfortable. And now we can feel the hunger of our soul and in that hunger cry out to God. It does not dull us. It sets us free to feel deeply. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 8, 22, chapter 8, verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Look at how he describes this groaning. And let me apologize to all the women in this room. I don't know at all what I'm talking about here. But he, he describes it as groaning as in the pains of childbirth. This is not some, oh, I can't wait for Jesus to come. This is someone who has felt the pain of the world around them and has seen the glorious hope and is groaning with every fiber of their being, Jesus, come quickly. I long for you. This world needs you desperately. Karen had our first three children all natural. No pain medicine. Our third child was nine pounds, ten ounces. My little petite Karen is in labor with a nine pound, ten ounce baby. It was all natural, but there was nothing at all natural about the sounds that were coming out of her mouth. There was deep anguish and uh, labor. Paul says, that's, that's the, when we see our hope and are set free to see the pain, our longing is like a woman in labor, just longing and waiting for it. But I, what I want you to see, as well as the intensity of our longing, and I think sometimes we miss this, is the nature of our longing. It says that creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth to be delivered from its bondage to decay and to share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. Creation's freedom, creation's redemption is intrinsically tied with our redemption. The physical world's redemption is tied in with our redemption. Not only that, but Paul says we groan inwardly for our adoption as sons. And what does that look like? The redemption of our bodies, our future hope, is a physical, flesh and blood hope. Look with me, if you would, at Revelation chapter 21, starting at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men. This is a voice from the throne. This is God himself saying this. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. 
He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You need to remember them. The good news of the gospel is not that when we die, we get to go to live with God. The good news of the gospel is not that when we die, we get to go to live with God. The good news of the gospel is that one day we will be resurrected and God will come to live with us. God is our inheritance. That is the gospel. We get God. Jesus was raised with a physical body. We will be raised with a physical body and God will come to dwell with us. Not only that, but he will wipe every tear from our eyes. From about kindergarten to seventh grade, I was badly bullied by a couple boys in our neighborhood. Now, I don't remember much about elementary school. I do remember I was terrified by my first grade teacher. There was just some, for some reason, she just frightened me badly. Um, but that has nothing to do with this sermon. Um, <laughs> what I do remember, though, is I remember running home crying, bruised and bleeding. And my mother picked me up and she sat me on the chair. And she got down on her knees in front of me. And she tenderly wiped the dirt and the gravel from my bleeding knees. And she bandaged me up. And she wiped away my tears. And at that moment, things were better than just okay. There was some way in that tender, healing care that my mother gave me that my soul found satisfaction. There is a day coming when there will be no more bullying, no more oppression, no more pain, no more death, no more sorrow, no more mourning, and God will come to us and wipe every tear from our eyes. And it will be more than okay, because at that moment, our ravenously hungry souls will find complete and total satisfaction. We will be overwhelmed by the goodness and the glory of our God who has come to be Emmanuel, God with us, the garden restored, even better. Paul says, we wait for this patiently. Seriously, Paul? Have you ever seen a woman in labor who was waiting patiently? Baby, come! There's no, how can he talk about us groaning as in the pains of childbirth and then say, wait for it patiently? I think the NASB has a better translation of that verse. It says this. But if we hope for what we do not see, through perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. The word there can mean patience or perseverance. Our future hope works perseverance in us. Suppose there's a young couple and they're deeply in love. They're just smitten. And they get engaged. But before they're able to be married... The, the man is called away to war. And as he leaves, he gives his bride-to-be a picture of himself to remember him by. 
And every morning when she gets up, she looks at that picture and she longs for her love. She knows he is the one who satisfies her heart. And every night before she goes to bed, she looks at the picture and she just longs for his return. And, and he's gone for a long time. And because he's gone so long, there are other men who approach her as suitors. And they promise to fulfill her desires, her needs, her loneliness right here, right now. But it is her deep longing for the one she knows can satisfy her that keeps her faithful. She perseveres in faithfulness even while he's gone because she knows in her longing that he is the one who's... It, it is her longing that keeps her faithful. It is our longing for the coming bridegroom that keeps us faithful, that keeps us from turning to other things to satisfy our heart when we know that he alone... Our coming king is the one who can satisfy us and satisfy us totally. I want that. I want that kind of hope and that kind of longing, that kind of freedom, that kind of a, that, that, that sets me free to enter into the loving compassions of Christ, to share with him in his sufferings and share with him in his glory. I want that. I don't have that. In many ways, I am a slave to my own hungers. What are we to do? Verse 26, Romans 8. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. I always thought this verse said, we do not know how to pray, so the Spirit helps us. It doesn't say that. It says we don't know what to pray for. And so the Spirit groans for us. When I am vomiting from the pain of a migraine headache, I am praying for deliverance. But could it be that I don't know what to pray for? Could it be that in our pain, we don't know what to pray for? Could it be that in our pain, the Spirit of God is interceding for us, saying, God of heaven, use this pain to wean Tim from his addictions to comfort. Use this pain to, to cause Tim to cling all the more tightly to your redemption. Use this pain to give him the ability to empathize with others who are in pain, to be able to share in the sufferings of Christ Jesus. Spirit has a work to do in us. I'd ask you to join me in prayer as we seek God in this. Spirit of God, we pray that you might intercede for us even now. God of heaven, our eyes are on the things of this world that are passing and not on your eternal kingdom and your glory. Spirit of God, we ask that you might open our eyes to see the greatness of our hope, that our future hope might form our present, that you might set us free to live a life of compassion, to share in the sufferings of Christ, in the love of Christ, in the joy of Christ, and in the eternal glory of Christ. 
Grant us faith, Jesus, we pray. Spirit of God, teach us, change us, open our eyes to the eternal hope that is ours, that has been purchased for us in Christ Jesus. Amen. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Amen.